0: Welcome to Someday Is Here, a podcast for Asian-American women on leadership and culture. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. This podcast has been created to carve out a space for Asian-American women to explore and validate living in both Eastern and Western worlds. Each week, we will celebrate our heritage and highlight Asian-American history, My guests and I will explore our various Asian American journeys, both the parts that we are proud of and the parts that have brought pain. We'll discuss practical tips on leadership and our favorite comfort foods, of course. This is a place and a space to bring words and understanding to our shared experience living biculturally. I am so glad you're listening and look forward to your feedback. Enjoy the show. So excited for today's guest, Diane Doko Kim, and I had the opportunity of meeting her in person earlier this year, and was drawn to her instantly because of her warmth, her humor, her authenticity. She is she's the real deal, and uh, uh, I really found in her a kindred spirit. And our conversation I felt like could have gone on and on. Uh, Diane uh, shares from a really deep place of. Um, Her personal journey as a mother of um, special needs son. Um, Her son has autism and she wrote a book about it and we will link up all that information. Um, Her book is called Unbroken Faith, Spiritual Recovery for the Special Needs Parent. Uh, She is familiar with the uh, process of having to, of receiving a diagnosis and some of the disillusionment that comes with that. And Um, I just so appreciate her willingness to um, share from her own personal journey as an Asian-American woman. Her leadership lessons are so great as well. So I'm really, really, really excited for you to hear from her today. And also today, I'll be sharing another tidbit of history, of Asian-American history. Did you know that the first significant wave of immigration for Koreans Started on January 13th in 1903. Korean immigrants arrived in Hawaii to work on pineapple and sugar plantations. And by 1905, more than 7,226 Koreans had come to Hawaii. That fun fact is significant to me as well as my husband's okinawan side of the family he's fourth generation okinawan and his great-grandparents had also come to hawaii uh, via the route of working on the sugar plantations so that's this week's did you know enjoy the show Well, welcome back to Sunday is Here. So excited this week to introduce to you my guest, Diane Doko Kim. That's right. Is that correct? I said it correctly. Yes. And Diane is a, is a vivacious, vibrant speaker and author, brilliant mind and really a love for people that is contagious. And so Diane, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Vivian. I am the one that's geeking out to be here in the space with you. So thank you. Oh, my goodness. Well, for our listeners, maybe you could explain how we even know each other. Goodness, how do we know each other? I think
1: um, several years ago when you were first starting out uh, with your first book, mm-hmm. um, I think we got connected uh, just by other Asian, like a, a reader or a follower of yours thought that I should know you. and So I think that's how we got connected. Mm-hmm. And then I just started following you because it was just so cool to find another Asian American woman that's actually publishing and that's actually speaking. And so that was such a rarity that I always kind of kept you on the radar. But that was like five years ago, and you've gone through so much, and you published your second book recently. And then when you put out that you're doing a meetup in Northern California, I'm like, oh, i got to be there. I've got to be there. i <laughs> this woman, and it's thrilling to find another sister in this space, and so I've got mm-hmm. to physically be there. So that's how we got connected.
0: Well, you know, what I've found, I think – you know, in Asian circles, typically it's like two degrees of separation. Yes. But there's something to be said about um, the kindred, the kindred spirit of meeting other, either creatives or people yes. doing the same thing. And right. so I think when I met you, it was just like, please, could we have coffee soon? And will you just move to Southern California? I'll move to Northern California. I don't know. So. <laughs> Anyway, I'm so thrilled. Well, I would love for our listeners to, to get to know um, some of your story, your ethnic journey mm-hmm. um, as a Korean American. And I would just love you for you to share your part of your ethnic journey. Okay. Just all the things. Um, so I'm Korean American. I consider myself
1: a 1.75 generation, which means... Uh, we came, my family with my parents came to the States and I think it was 1975 when I was three years old. So technically I am an immigrant, but because I came in when I was age three, I pretty much grew up, you know, in American culture, which is why I sound like this now. And mm. so, um, I probably understand maybe 20, 30% of when my parents and grandparents speak Korean to me, but of course I'm speaking back to them in English. Mm. So that's yeah. 1.75. And so that's a funky space to grow up in, in, in the one sense I grew up raised very traditional, you know, Korean parents. Um, I learned to cut fruit, you know, for guests. But at the same time, like, I was my dad's firstborn, and he's fairly progressive. So even though he's a, you know, typical Korean-American dad, immigrant dad, he's also very progressive. So he actually gave me a Korean boy's name. My What's Korean that? name is Tung. Hong, And it's just one syllable because my last name, my maiden name, is two syllables. In Korean culture, you know, you, you have three syllables. So he intentionally gave me a boy's name because he said – even though, even though my first child is a daughter, I want to raise her to be aggressive and assertive and to give her every opportunity as I would if she was my a first son. So, wow. we, yeah, I kind of grew up with a funky duality. And so there's all the expectations of the Asian daughter and all of that. But then at the same time, I had some fairly liberal, progressive parents for uh, first generation.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah. So where did you grow
1: up? I uh, So I grew up in Northern California, which there were not that many Asians back then. Mm-hmm. And so most of the Asian Americans, Korean Americans I knew, they were all in Southern California where you are. And so I kind of blame that we grew up here in the sticks where there were not that many Asian Americans as to why I don't speak Korean. Like, you know, y'all had Korean school and everything down there. Like we just didn't have that up here. So I think I just grew up with a sense of really feeling like yeah, a foreigner because there mm-hmm. were no, there were very few people like me. So yeah, I grew up being called, you know, you can edit this out if it's not appropriate, but I grew up being called a chink. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't say how many times I heard that, um, being asked where I'm from. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, don't you hear me? I sound exactly like you. I have no accent whatsoever. What do you mean where am I from? And so there was no other, very few um, to have that sense of solidarity with. So, I mean, I'm not proud of this, but yeah, I grew up really kind of ashamed of my Asian background. And so I would have my friends come over in elementary school. You know, they'd open the refrigerator. First of all, I had to be embarrassed because I asked them to take their shoes off because, you know, that's what you do. Right. And, right. you know, I had explained that and that, you know, my friends were looking at me going, what? And it just, <laughs> it's just a thing in my family. Okay, can you guys just, can you just take your shoes off? My mom will be upset. I didn't bother right. explaining. You know, I said it was about the carpet. <laughs> yes. my, mom, my mom has this thing about carpet. Um, yeah, they'd come over, you know, and they'd open the fridge. They'd ask for soda. We didn't have soda. We had, you know, barley tea. Right. Just all <laughs> the things. And it smelled like garlic. Yeah. And, and yes. then, you know, you had the Chinese herbal medicine going on once a year. And it was just, you know, so I always wanted to go to my friend's house, my wife friend's house, so I could be part of their world. And boy, did I so want to be part of their world because that was, that was the majority world. And I was the outsider. I was the weird one. So, yeah, it's, I'm not proud of that, but yeah, I grew up feeling kind of ashamed and embarrassed that I was weird. My family background was weird. um, really trying to assimilate, you know, and yeah, do the Twinkie thing, you know, yell mm-hmm. on the outside, want on the inside. I probably, that's probably why I sound so Americanized when people hear me without saying me, they think they're talking to a middle-aged white woman. So really? um, yeah, so yeah, I grew up just kind of ashamed of my identity. It wasn't until college that I really began to embrace like oh no this is not something to be embarrassed about this is actually a cool thing but you know what that came when i went to college and found other asian americans and i had an Mm -hmm. awakening
0: so tell um explain some more of that like tell me yeah yeah so i went to
1: college in berkeley where you know there's a lot of asian americans because you gotta go there right right and i started going to an asian american college ministry And first of all, uh, my maiden name is Doko. And in Korean culture, that's a very rare last name. Mm -hmm. And when I started hanging out with our our Asians, people would always say, Doko, wow, that's a really rare name. And I'm thinking, it's not that rare to me. I know lots of Dokos. They're all related to me. (laughs) I didn't think he was that strange. But, um, you know, because everybody else is Cho, Pak, Lee or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I felt this kind of sense of pride of being a little bit different. I think it was the first time that I actually prided myself in being something unique. Because nobody mistook me for anybody else. I wasn't Diane Kim, I wasn't Diane Chu, I wasn't Diane Chow, I was Diane Doko. And everybody remembered that. And I think just definitely being around other Asian Americans who grew up in the same way, it was really it was an awakening. Mm. Um, and like we all went to each other's dorms and took off our shoes naturally. You know, we, we just assumed that we're gonna be eating with chopsticks. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't apologize for the kimchi. You know, like I could have kimchi because, you know, I didn't yeah. have other people going, ew, like, oh my God was that?
0: Holy. <laughs>
1: and so it was so empowering. And I think that's just whether it's a matter of ethnicity or whatever it is, if you're in a mic, if you've grown up feeling like a minority and you find other people like you, it's that moment of, oh my gosh, me too. And there's this yeah. one great quote by C.S. Lewis that I'm always butchering. Um, True friendship is found when one person says to another, Oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. Yes. And then instant community is born because so much of the things that you had to grow up explaining um, as an alien, as a foreigner, is just implicitly understood and you get each other. And there's such freedom in that.
0: Mm, That is so true. I love that. So, with your awakening, what would you say today are places that you are proud of being Mm. American? Mm.
1: That would be an easy one because. We're talking from you know elementary to high school of being ashamed of my Asian American identity um, to college where I had that rebirth and reawakening and then you know in my 30s we had this whole other journey of um, I have a child with uh, multiple disabilities and so all of a sudden just being an outsider or being the weirdo just went on a whole other level mm. not that I consider myself a weirdo but I know what society in general how they view folks with disability. And, you know, as a parent, I take that personally. Mm. And so I think, you know, and then, you know, in my forties, there was the whole publishing journey and whatnot. So I would, this is an easy one for me to answer Vivian. I would say my proudest moment these days is when I get to be on a speaking platform and I look at all the other presenters and I'm the only either Asian American or person of color.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, I, I kind of geek out at that when I look at who the other presenters are. First of all, whenever, um, you know, I look at a conference, whether I'm speaking or attending, I always check out the panel of presenters.
0: Totally. Me too. Yeah.
1: It, it just matters to me. It matters to us, right? And so, for me to see that I'm the only person, only woman of color, mm-hmm. the only Asian American, um, on that on that platform, on that roster, yeah, it does fill me with a bit of pride to be able to represent.
0: Oh, I love that, I yeah. love that. Yeah. And I think that there is such, so much, um, what, well, when I think of what you're bringing to, you know, to the conversation, even as, you know, whether it's, okay, so you're talking about disability. Mm-hmm talking about the topic of autism, mm-hmm. but what you bring as an Asian American with your cultural values, the way that we navigate as a collective, all of those things are missing without your voice there. Mm-hmm. And the representation piece, I think, well, what I found over and over is even non-Asians who are coming from communities of color, mm-hmm. they, they understand that, that yes. collective, you know, the not bringing shame upon the whole. Yes. Uh, representing the whole. It's not an individual, uh, just my story. But right. my story influences others. And so I just love that you would have opportunity to, yeah. to be a representative.
1: I, I want to share a couple instances with you that just will stay with me for a long time. Um, I think like. I think it was, I don't know, like maybe seven years ago when I went to my first large Christian writers conference. Mm -hmm. There was about, I don't know, you know, hundreds of people there. And of course, I noticed I was one of the few people of color there. And I remember like a day and a half into the conference, I saw another African-American woman way on the other side of the dining commons. Mm -hmm. And something in me just, compelled me to just walk across that dining room and I walked over to her and I said I'm sorry you don't know who I am but can I just thank you for being here as a fellow sister of color Mm -hmm. and Vivian she pretty much dropped her plate and we just clutched hands and we almost cried yes and we like we just met we didn't say anything but somehow we just there was a reason why we clutched hands as strangers and just looked in each other's eyes and cried we knew exactly what we were talking about yeah. And she was like, thank you so much for coming over and finding me and connecting. And it's like, we just got each other because yeah, yeah. we both felt so like, oh gosh, I'm the only person of color here. So to find each other. And it's really that um, the fellowship of what I call a shared otherness.
0: Mm. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yes.
1: The yes. Fellowship of shared otherness. And so, yeah, she's not Asian American and I'm not black, but we both share in that otherness. Mm-hmm. And even though the details are different, yeah, just that experience of being
0: the other, we can mm-hmm. commune in, on that level. Oh, totally. Well, I, you know, what's so interesting is we kind of have that Asian, like nod, like with strangers, like, cause I literally, and I think this is true of most women of color, um, and specifically Asian American. When I walk into a room, I'm scanning mm-hmm. the whole room and I will find, you know, just as you did in the dining hall, there's yeah. one more person of color across the way, but we kind of, there's kind of a, uh, a meeting of the eyes and then knowing, like, yeah. you know, like a little bit of a nod or maybe a little smile, but it's yeah. kind of like, I see you, you see yeah. you, we get it. <laughs> you know, it's so. a mental fist bump. <laughs> yeah, it's a mental fist bump. Exactly. I love that. Oh my goodness. So, well, I would love for you to share maybe a little bit about parts of your journey that have brought pain. Like mm. I know that you alluded to being called chink, mm. you know, um, being mistaken for Chinese when you're Korean, you know, I mean, like that kind of thing. But like, what are, if you could remember or recall any of those times where it's been painful?
1: Um, You mean specifically regarding ethnicity and Asian American identity? Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, other than just the childhood and we lived in a fairly lower middle Class neighborhood, and so it was rough around the edges, so yeah, a lot of the the chink and Chinese and go back to where you came from, wow. um, those kinds of things um, as far as i I think one thing this may not be a good example, but you can choose. When I was in high school, I was really into theater, and I actually ended up being a theater major in college after much ado. That's a whole nother story. Oh, I but, love
0: that. I yeah. love that. Way to break
1: the stereotype exactly. stuff. Exactly. Okay, that's another, like, that was a, you know, pride, you know, beta mm-hmm. moment. Yes. Like, okay. I'm going to be an Asian American theater major. First of all, my parents, let me. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> This my to the parents let me, you know, and this is after you know six years of college and meandering. I'm jumping around here, but yeah, I went to college and I thought I had, you know, I was obligated socially, culturally obligated to be, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, or get my MRS degree. That's pretty much the only options, you know, yes. in in the motherland. Um, and so I went through all these other majors like Asian American Studies and basically all the humanities. But deep down, I always wanted to be what I wanted to be. And I was i was born to be a theater major. I want That's what I wanted to study. And so I did terrible. I was a terrible student. I got an academic probation. So atypical Asian, right? I almost got kicked out of school. And so you know, I finally had my come-to-Jesus moment. I said, Mom, Dad, I know it's been six years of college or whatever it is at that point, but I want to be a theater major. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And my dad, being as progressive as he was, said, why didn't you do this from the beginning? (laughs) And he was like, we always knew in high school that this is what you wanted to do. So we were surprised when you did all these other random majors that we can't pronounce. We always knew that this was your passion. So we wish you could have saved time and our money (laughs) and, and just do this because that's how God wired me. So anyway, that's a whole other thing. But I would say going back to your original question of a pain moment was in high school, I auditioned and almost got the lead role Mm -hmm. in my senior year, but I didn't fit the type. Of course, most roles are for the blonde, pretty ingenue. And I'm this four foot, 11 and three quarters, five feet with hairspray or gel, (laughs) stocky little Asian girl. And I didn't get the role, but the director pulled me aside afterwards because he felt really bad. He says, Diane, you're actually the most, you're the best dancer. You're the best singer. You're the best actress, but you don't look the part. And the counterpart is, He was like, you know, six foot two or whatever. So we would have made a funny dance, you know, couple. And so I remember I came home. My mom remembers this to this day. I came home so enraged and so feeling this is so unjust that I put a hole through the wall.
0: Wow. I
1: put a hole through the wall. And my mom remembers that to this day. And I'm like, why was I born Asian? Why was I born short? Why can't I be like everybody else? This is such a liability. I even have the ability, the director even verified that, but because of my packaging, it has worked against me. Wow. So I think that was probably one of the most painful parts about Ugh, why was I born this way?
0: Yes, yeah. totally. I can actually relate. Cause my dad, I don't know you, this is, a, you know, this is our coffee conversation, Diane, yeah. but my dad was a theater professor. Oh. The so he, uh, produced, and directed for the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. He How uncommon, me. especially for your I dad's generation. Don't I don't know. So I went to all the Romeo and Juliet rehearsals. I, yeah. as, as a nine-year-old, had the entire play memorized. Yeah. I was spotting the actors on their, <laughs> on their lines, you know, because I knew it back and forth. Yeah. And then I remember when he drove, we were driving home from rehearsal, and he just said, it's too bad you'll never be Juliet because. <sighs>
1: exactly, Viv.
0: You know, yeah. and so I remember that um as that moment of realizing, OK, because of how I look, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if I know the lines. Right. It's really that. So that's why to me, representation matters is mm-hmm. so important to see on screen or wherever. On the stage, or you know, doing the things that it just it is so so deeply matters to me. And what
1: a year are we having in mainstream media as Asian Americans? Okay. Oh yeah. Someday
0: is now, Vivian. Is now, Diane. We are. We (laughs) are amazing. I just love that. So, (laughs) well, part of our the podcast "Someday Is Now" is about leadership, and I, you know, just knowing parts of your story, but knowing that you have been involved in various levels of leadership, you and your husband. Mm-hmm. And I would just love for you to share with listeners um, one of your leadership principles that you kind of navigate life mm. through, by, whatever. Gosh, <laughs> just just one, huh? Or a few, if you okay. like. I mean, you're I'll so I'll give one. you a bunch and you pick. You okay. edit it
1: out, Erin. Um, I think one... Gosh! So, you know, the last 20, 30 years have all been about leadership and discipleship and mentoring and harsh Mm -hmm. lessons learned. So it's hard to pick just one. But um, let me start off at the beginning. I'll give you the conclusion at the end for this particular story. Um, So I, as I mentioned, um, I grew up pretty much wanting to be white all Mm -hmm. throughout high school. And in college, I started going to an Asian American church because it Mm -hmm. was the first time that I'd ever even met other Asian Americans. And so Mm -hmm. I was, you know, this was like, this was like the county fair for me. Um, And so I went to a church that was extremely strong on discipleship, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps a little bit too extreme. And I think going to an Asian or Asian American church, I've noticed now that I'm almost 50, there's a lot of times in ethnic churches that you can mix the culture with you know the religious part Mm -hmm. so it's it become intertwined so it's hard to separate what is actually a christian thing or a bible thing with what's a korean thing or an asian thing Mm. and that can work well and in the way it worked well in this particular context was you know, in Asian cultures, you have you know a very hierarchical culture, right? Um, um, you know, you, you don't even call elders by their name; you call them by a title, right? Older sister, or whatever it is, right? And you have an equivalent. There's an equivalent Japanese, Chinese, and Korean. And so that cultural aspect lended itself well to discipleship because you submitted. You knew to listen to the senior above you, and so they mentored you, and you submitted. And it was kind of like like the kung fu movies, like master, what do you say? You, you know. Be at morning, yes. prayer meeting, 6 a.m. Yes, Master, I shall be there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Grasshopper. Yes, yes. yes Grasshopper. <laughs> and so um, that lent itself well to yeah, really strong mentorship and discipleship and things like that. The flip side of that, I, and I think that dynamic is missing so much in Western white American churches. They don't know how to do that kind of discipleship and really sticky community and fellowship. Um, but the way that that can go sideways is it can be very controlling mm. and it can get unhealthy very fast. And it can become very codependent very fast. And so I think it crippled me to be overly submissive to what senior people were telling me to do or not telling me to do. And it also lent itself into an already existing culture as an Asian American of waiting to be picked.
0: Ah, yes.
1: Waiting to be told what to do, waiting to be picked.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And there was no issue in this particular context of, What's my calling? What's my gifting? What was, my, what was I born to do? It's, I was waiting to be told what to do. Mm. There's a the difference between obedience and submission, you know, which is very biblical concepts and just like, I'm being taken advantage of here. I'm being manipulated here.
0: Right, right. And and so happening.
1: I think I'm grateful for the heritage that I come from because I did learn to be um, an apprentice. Mm -hmm. I learned how to be a mentee. I learned how to value mentorship and having somebody coaching you. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, long story short, when that whole system fell apart, because like I said, it became an unhealthy environment and it just, you know, it imploded after a while. um, I learned to trust also in my own voice. So it has to be a balance. Mm -hmm. That's so good. And I think these days there are so many, you know, anyone can be a leader. You just throw something on the Internet. You're a voice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think just generationally, culturally, and just even what's going on in history, everyone is afraid to submit to authority. Mm -hmm. With absolutely legitimate, understandable reasons, right? Um, Just in history, in the last 20 years, young people do not trust authority. Mm -hmm. And it's only getting worse, and they have legitimate reasons to. But you miss out so much on learning opportunities and being shaped and developed as a person. So I would say leadership is for as a as a follower. You have as a le- you have to know how to follow first.
0: Mm, that's so good. Yes. If
1: you want to be a leader, you know you have to know how to follow first. You have to know how to listen. You have to know how to submit. You have to learn. You have to be willing to be corrected. Mm. You have to be willing. To be disciples, you have to want it, and you have to understand commitment and discipleship, and yeah, have be willing to have people speak into your life, even though they're going to say things that might challenge you or be uncomfortable or flat out be offensive. Um, and I think that's missing in today's culture and environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, but it's also balancing with. Um, I think it's more actually of a Western culture mm-hmm. too, of trusting your own voice. Yeah, yeah, trusting and not being a doormat and being intrepid. Mm-hmm. And listening, you know, marching to the beat of my own drum. And that goes counter to my heritage, my church heritage, and my cultural heritage of just being a follower and being told what to do. Right. So I would say leadership is both, it's a balance of um, knowing how to follow first, knowing mm-hmm. how to listen, um, and then also, um, yeah, knowing how to step out and lead. But I would not be able, I would not have anything to say if I had not spent all of those years following and listening and receiving
0: first. Sure. So I would say that's one. Oh, that's so good. That's, there's no editing here. (laughs) So good. Okay. To me, that's just demonstrating a beautiful bringing together of Eastern and Western values. Absolutely. So it's being true to who we are. Yes. Because we carry both. Yes. That is really truly who we are. Yeah. Because being raised in North America, United States of America, you know here and now, mm-hmm. there are those values that we were taught educationally and otherwise, what was modeled to us right. um, which are Western and more you know have a voice and speak out and lead out and mm-hmm. and even the vision that your father had right, which, which kind of pulls a full circle while simultaneously having an appreciation of exactly what the collective that we are born into as well, which is equally important. So I love that example. That is beautiful. And actually, it's interesting
1: because I spent so many years just kind of flip-flopping from one extreme to the other, right? Wishing, Mm -hmm. being Asian, but wishing I was white. Um, And, you know, on all of that. But I think now I'm at a place, as I'm nearing 50, where I so value having one leg in one culture and one leg in the other. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I get to appreciate the assets and limitations of both. And I get to choose which parts are funky that I'm going to disregard and leave out right. and which parts of both sides that I get to incorporate and say, this is a part of me. And I think unless you have two perspectives to toggle between, you can't see the other. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of abstract, but, like, I'll give you an example. You know, when we all go to college, every, you think that every – like. My brother and I grew up eating Del Monte canned vegetables. We thought that was normal, <laughs> <laughs> right? We thought everybody ate, you know, and then when I went to college and, you know, all of these people like, ew, now my mom only made organic kale or whatever. We're like, what means organic kale? My parents were, I was a last <laughs> kid. My parents oh. owned restaurants, you know, they had, they were working 12 hours a day. The only vegetables we got were canned vegetables. And I just thought, everybody ate canned vegetables, you know, but yeah. I wouldn't have recognized that this is different. And what everybody else is doing is different unless I had that vantage point. You know what I mean? Mm, So good.
0: So So good. It
1: it gives you two sets of eyes. You could look at it as code switching. You could also look at it as culturally toggling between and being being by culture, by by identity. And so it's such an asset for me now.
0: Mhm mhm Oh and you know what I I think just like dovetailing off of what you're saying is I think Asian Americans are part of the solution yes. to the polarization that is taking place today in the United States with on every level. Say that and Vivian. I'm going to say that. Say it. I'm going to drop my mic. No, yes. <laughs> but I do think that we play a very integral part because as we um navigate feeling like perpetual foreigner Mm -hmm. while also holding high value with some of these cultural things. I think that we are our ability to toggle Mm -hmm. to navigate the in between is I think a very important quality that is necessary for both sides to hear one another. Yes. And so I, I have a vision that Asian Americans would be voices that would speak into what's currently polarizing right and help to bring together but the onus is on us though Mm -hmm. to move through Mm -hmm. the wait to be asked and to actually push through and say yes i do actually have something to to um to contribute and that's where i think when i think about Younger Asian American women, whether they're coming up through the business world or in education or whatever the places are where there are people who talk over one another. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, like, get into the community, into the conversation. And We don't do that. We wait until mm-hmm. the mic is passed to mm-hmm. us. Exactly. And so learning to push through that, I think it's really it. it will require us linking arms and encouraging mm-hmm. one another to do just that. So my hope really is that, you know. The podcast is one piece of it, but that even greater is um, that we would have that the sisterhood, the linking of arms where we could encourage each other to go, yes, speak out. It's Mm -hmm. I got your back. So, I, you know, I think what you have to say is so important right now. Please keep going. Don't give up. And I think that that's really the only way to break through that threshold. Mm-hmm. is to be able to to be to understand the dynamic that's going on right. and then to have the encouragement and the where you know so the wherewithal and the encouragement to move into yeah. rather than to just kind of wait so i love it i yes. love it uh, I wish that our listeners could see us smiling and nodding <laughs> during our conversation. We're, we're like, going, like it up with arms well, know, our arms. I know, <laughs> our arms are flailing, you know. Yes, so, well, that is useful. So, Diane, I would love for you to share a little bit about, like, your book. I have it here right next to me. It's called Unbroken Faith, Spiritual Recovery for the Special Needs Parent. And I would just love for you to summarize maybe just some of the the, the points about your book, you know, content, um, what you hope readers would get out of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so go for it. Okay. Well, uh,
1: this was a book that I never planned to write. I never planned to be an author. Um, my husband and I had been in bivocational ministry for about 25 years. And uh, in 2002, we went abroad with our six-month-old at the time to serve on missions. And when we came back, um, long story short, he was diagnosed with autism. And we went, or at least I went, what? Mhm. What? This is what we get, you know, for, you know, being missionaries and serving God and all of that. And so, um I had a significant crisis of faith. And so, um because I felt trapped, you know, just I think just even as Asians, there's such a stigma to depression. Or just mm-hmm. not doing well. You just feel like you have to fake it till you make it. And I certainly felt that way. So, um, and I couldn't pursue therapy. It just wasn't an option to me. And I couldn't even admit how much I was struggling inside. And so all of the rage and the bitterness and the disillusionment, I basically poured into a password protected document. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much did business with God and business with the Bible. Like, I don't even know if I believe in this stuff anymore. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, this is gonna, like, we're gonna, you know, there's a chapter in the Bible, Genesis, about um, Jacob and how he wrestled with God. He wrestled all night and he said, You know, I'm not gonna let go until you bless me. And so, for me, that was my Jacob experience when I said, Okay, you know what? I am not gonna let go until you answer some questions. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> I, and I pretty much threw down with God. I said, If you're real, how could you let this kind of stuff happen? I even mm-hmm. believed in you, I even went to the other side of the planet for your sake, for your name, and you let this happen. So, you know, how could you let this happen? Why us? Why me? Are you going to fix it? And if you're not going to fix it, how do I even believe that you're real anymore? And what does the Bible have to do with this? Wow. And so in a way, it was a it's not really a book about disability or being a special needs parent, but it's how do we all respond when we get crippled by life?
0: Mm-hmm. When
1: something hits us because we are all residents of a broken planet, at some point, something's going to mess you up. Right. And whether you believe in God or didn't, it's going to make you point to the skies and go, What
0: the heck? Right. Or you could double hockey sticks. <laughs> yes.
1: <Yeah. H-E-double> what? <laughs> that's sec- H E double L. And so you know, there's a verse in the Bible um, that says the word of God is living and active. And right. I went, No, it ain't. <laughs> right. This is a book that's 2,000 years old. What does this have to do with special needs parenting? You right. know, God, if He exists, You know, he's an omnipotent God. He snaps his fingers and, ho, the universe appears. Me, I'm down here struggling with health insurance and with the school district and, you know, my kid and all of that. Like, he don't know Mm. nothing about this. How is that relevant? And so for about five years, I just wrestled. um, Mm. And, you know, all of the questions... I wrestled with God and the Bible actually truly did become living and acting and gave me answers to every one of those core questions. that I believe that we all have, whether you're wrecked by disability, divorce, disease, whatever, sure. um, we can all have the same solution and the same hope. And so um, that's what this is about. It's about biblical answers to the core questions when we all get disabled by something.
0: Ooh, that's so good. Oh, well, I hope listeners will definitely pick up the book and read because I I agree the longer each time I circle the earth or whatever how do they say that again um, every birthday you circle the the sun yes every time <laughs> yes, you're looking at me like what are you talking about I'm like English is my second language I mix up my metaphors all the time yeah, you I don't know had when it suits us right yeah. seriously right so Anyway, so circling the sun, you know, but every time I circle the sun again. But the longer I live, yeah. the more that I see that we, none of us live our plan A. Yeah. And I think a lot of times the exact response that you had, mm-hmm. you know, is so natural. And I love that God is bigger than those feelings. So he, we don't have to get all cleaned up to come and wrestle with him like you're talking about. So I'm really excited about mm-hmm. your book and, um, and all that you're doing to be a voice in this time um, for special needs parents. And, you know, I just, I, and I know that there's so much more that you bring than just being a special needs parent, you know, that there's, there's just much more to that. Okay. So mother of two sons mm-hmm. um, in light of this, Eastern Western bicultural Asian American Korean American experience if you were to have one thing that you would hope that your sons would pass on to the coming generation. What would what would that be.
1: This might sound cheesy but I pray that my sons would grow up to be just like their father my husband. Mm. and. My husband has done a marvelous job of, you know, he's Asian American, second generation like me. He's the son of a doctor, firstborn son of a doctor and all of that. Mm. Um, So he grew up with, you know, those kinds of expectations in extreme. And he also has done a marvelous job of just like Asian American women. We straddle two worlds and sometimes have conflicting expectations Yes, um, or it feels like double the expectations, right? Yes, yes. both worlds, he too has done that, and sometimes the expectations and the burden on men and fathers and leaders is is just categorically different.
0: Mm. And
1: so, my husband, to his credit, has done a marvelous job of reconciling. I guess, cultural or, you know, secular expectations of what a successful man is supposed to be Mm. in that he's, he's, yes, he's absolutely very successful in his career, but he puts his family first. Mm -hmm. So to him, his order, ranking order is God, family, and then career, you know, so God, ministry, serving other people. And so he toggles so well the world's expectations of him, but then what his family needs, and that's always going to be the priority. He he's a man of integrity, but at the same time he's a man of compassion.
0: Mm.
1: And as much as he prioritizes his family first, he's a leader and he's a he's a servant leader. There's that you know paradox again. Mm-hmm. And so he models so many dualities so well of being a leader but being a follower, being a servant. Um, but being a leader, being uncompromising when it comes to integrity and principle, being so empathetic and passionate, um, knowing how to be a man. He's like the Alpha Man, if you've ever seen a picture. I, I, I nickname him the Hot Asian Male. He's a Hot Asian Male. He's a Hot Middle Asian Male. Um, and it's funny because he's actually a pretty good looking guy. And so people say, oh, he looks like, you know, all the aunties of church would say, oh, he's like the Korean Richard Gere. And I'm like, yeah, he's a pretty woman, right? <laughs> and I'm so not. But anyway, I totally digress. But, um, yeah, he he balances so many worlds well.
0: Mm. So many
1: worlds well. Um, but what it means, the expectation to be a dude, a man, an alpha male. And he looks like that on the outside. But he has such a tender heart for people and for suffering. Um, mm. so yeah, that's a delicate balance. And I don't see that many men do that well these days. And it's so necessary. Like that's a man, mm. <laughs> that's a man that the world can respect and that his family absolutely respects and admires as well. And I think if you, you can command the respect of both worlds, your private and your public, you're doing it right.
0: Wow. That's yeah. so good. You know, it's so interesting because I think about, um, how often there's been a lot of wounding as I've met with Asian American women over the years, that uh, the absent father, Mm -hmm. the father who provided, but never was there emotionally. Correct. You know, there's, there are some father wounds Mm -hmm. and very real ones and understandable ones. There's just been a lot of hurt. So anytime we can celebrate good men, I think it's just so good to know that there are, there They're are those men. good men and yeah. and um and we are to celebrate them too yeah. so when when i think about you know a podcast for asian american women <clears throat> excuse me I, it is all about you know having us have a place a um a, a voice you know a, a an environment to be able to express our challenges and all of that but i think what you're bringing in here is so is equally important yeah that there is a whole journey that Asian American men go through and the more we as Asian American women can understand some of those challenges and the tensions and the and give appreciation Mm -hmm. to the nuance because it is hard to do well because they really are very different values that are coming together right Um, I think that that's really really important so I'm so glad you brought that up yeah can I give
1: you just one example I think that's relevant here especially is um, you know, in Asian-American culture, it's the man that's the primary breadwinner. And, you know, in Korean, t- traditionally, the wife is called Chipsaram, which means literally house person. Chipsaram <laughs> is literally translated house person. house person. And that's a traditional role. And that's a traditional you know model that he grew up under as well. Um, and yet he's married to a woman who travels the country and speaks and does, you know, all of this kind of public stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be perfectly understandable if he had a difficult time with that. Mm. But again, that's that duality that he has balanced so well. Mm. Um, it's funny. There was an article in Christianity Today that came out recently about husbands of you know, Christian famous authors and speakers.
0: Mm-hmm. And, as
1: I re- and they, So they interviewed all of these spouses of women who you know, are in the public realm, um, you know, how they manage. And most, by and large, the pattern is the man was like, you know what? God set this woman up to do something. I don't want to get in the way. <laughs> and my job is to support her and let her be all that God intended her to be. And as I was reading this, I'm like, this is exactly what Eddie does for me. And so I was just so mm-hmm. thankful. And so that bucks tradition, that bucks culture, that embraces the best parts of both worlds that we were both raised in. Right. Oh,
0: that's so good. Well, yeah. I look forward to meeting Eddie one day, too. And your sons. That will be such a such fun <laughs> thing. Well, how can my listeners connect with you, Diane? So my
1: website is diandokokim.com So that's D-I-A-N-E-D-O-K-K-O-K-I-M.com. And I love connecting with folks on Facebook. So I'm Diane Kim on Facebook. So let's
0: connect there. I love connecting with people. Well, we will have in our show notes, you know, a picture of your book and links to that and links to all your places. And, oh, I forgot to ask you, what is your favorite comfort food? Asian uh, comfort food. No brainer. kalbi. Right. Uh, I just had some last night. Okay, Vivian, kalbi
1: makes me the most proud to be Korean. (laughs) (laughs) Expound. There is, you know, Korean culture, as much as I've worked through a lot of stuff, there's so many funky parts to it, but the food is the redeeming part. Uh And kalbi is just the ultimate. So Mm -hmm. just, I don't even, it's like
0: bacon to American white folks.
1: Okay, yes. It's like the pride of our people.
0: Yes, that's right. Well, do you have a Calbee recipe that is from like the family, you know, or do you have your own or is that something that you would be willing to maybe share if possible? Or do you just take it from a jar?
1: <laughs> I just take it from a jar. Yeah. Okay. That's and so, so again, I've done the work of like, I am not a domestic diva and I fought mm-hmm. with that for so long. culture. i was supposed to learn how to cook, but I'm just not, I'm just not gifted in the domestic arts. Um, God has gifted me in other ways and I'm okay with that. So mm-hmm. restaurant straight out of a jar, bless it.
0: Okay. So do you have a favorite brand? Of really? jar? I probably do, but it's written in Korean. I can't remember the name. Okay, so take a photo and we'll post that photo. So I will. So you know, because your Korean taste buds are, you know, you know, good kalbi. So yes, this is good.
1: That'd I be a dalkooki. Dalkooki would be the runner-up, which is like mm. a, a spicy Korean Noki.
0: Ooh, 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 ooh! ooh. Yeah. So good. Maybe well, I went. Yeah, I went to Zion Market, which is a Korean grocery store. <clears throat> I bought kalbi <laughs> and bulgogi. And I just wanted to, like, tag all my Korean sisters, like, hey, I'm thinking of you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, for for Kali, I'll
1: just give you an easy one that older sisters have uh, discipled me with. It's basically a one-to-one-to-one ratio. Sugar, water, and soy sauce. Oh. Sugar, water, soy sauce.
0: One-to-one-to-one. Okay, well, yeah. that's easy to remember. That's easy, yeah. And then throw in a bunch of garlic. Mm-hmm.
1: Salt, pepper, whatever. Green onions.
0: But the Green base onions. is there. Oh. Uh, very good. Well, that will yeah. be uh, listeners tip can just like, yeah, the tip of the day, like <laughs> pro tip. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Diane, for being on the show, for sharing your heart, for being willing to um, just share your life with us. And I think it's just such a gift to have your um, hard-won truths be woven into your story and for us to be able to um, sit at your feet and listen and learn thank from you. you. So. Thank you. And honestly, Vivian, thank you so much for the invitation and for the
1: space for stories like mine, like ours, to matter.
0: Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank for you. That. Oh, my goodness. Well, everyone connect with Diane, and um, we will be back in the following weeks with even more wonderful women like Diane. So stay tuned. Thank you for joining us this week on Some Days Here. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment and subscribe to the show so that each new episode automatically downloads to your device every week. And thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. We would love for you to rate and review the show so that others can find out about us. A special thank you to the brilliant team that makes Someday's Here possible. The Someday's Here logo is designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. Show notes on the website are by Vicki Pham. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The director of design and website designer is Kenny Wong. And the executive producer is Chantelle Reynolds. Have a great week, and we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Someday is Here.